on this episode of AV Week, QSC acquires Atero, looking at 4K and 8K for e-gaming. And Integrated Systems Europe is open for registration. All that and more, next on AV Week. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. This is AV Week, episode 424, recorded Friday, October 4th, 2019. All the resolutions. Support for AV Nation is brought to you by Extron, industry-leading technology backed by world-class support. And by Sure, Sound Extraordinary. And by Vadio, makers of the new NDI professional broadcast camera, the RoboShot 30E NDI. This is AV Week, your weekly wrap-up of audio-visual news and information. My name is Tim Albright. I am your host. If you're watching the video, you see that I have a blue sweater on. If you're not, it is the first week of the NHL in the uh, in the uh, United States, and Mr. Caldera is booing me because he's a Blackhawks fan. I'm not, but the the the, the reigning uh, Stanley Cup champions, first time in history. So that I figured I'd I'd break out the old blue sweater today. Um, speaking of Caldera, Mr. Caldera is joining us all the way up uh, north from me at IAS in Peoria. Welcome, sir. Hello. Uh, also with us uh, is a buddy I haven't had in a long, long time. Uh, technically, uh, City Tech in New York uh, by way of CUNY, Mr. John Huntington. Welcome, sir. Hello, and live from the uh, Gravesend Inn control room. Yes, we're going to talk about that, actually. Yeah. I need I, I to have John on right around the yeah. 1st of October simply because if you were in and around the New York area, you need to go to his haunted house. We'll talk about that towards the end, but it's a really great job. All students and John, of course, the professor, but but all student right uh, Also with his first time guy, uh, so be nice to him. His name is Chris uh, Isaac uh, from Liberty. Welcome, sir. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. So let's, let's have some fun here, guys. Let's talk some tech. Uh, first and foremost, uh, biggest story, at least news, uh, oh my gosh, off the presses, QSC, acquiring tarot tech from the article uh, over at ABC. The end quote unquote QSC acquired a tarot tech. This combines the rapidly growing portfolio of the QSIS audio control system ecosystems with a tarot catalog network AV endpoints. Now, Sarah, we will start with you as our resident um, integrator. And what does this mean, uh, both to you and also to your customers as you're um, getting in and, and designing systems with QSIS and adding uh, a tarot? this mix well i like it i'm a big fan of atero tech's products um i think they're very kind of innovative and forward thinking as arguably qsc is so i think it's a it's a great merger i know we, we've complained a lot lately about mergers and acquisitions over the past two years uh, at least i know i have uh it seems that um this one I'm a fan of, right? I think it's only going to be better things to come because, you know, Tarotech, they weren't a monster company, right? And at least not the size of QSC. So now that they've got the uh, engineering, um, you know, even additional engineering, not saying they didn't have it before, but now that they've got, you know, the powerhouse engineering and, and financial backing of, of a bigger company like that, um, at least to my knowledge, a bigger company, right? Um, 
they, uh, I think there's going to see some really great things coming from uh, the development on, on that side of the house, uh, further integration with uh, QSIS platform and everything else. So I, I'm very excited about it. Do you think it helps, and you're excited because you, you know, folks were already using uh, Tarot endpoints with QSIS systems? Uh, yeah, I mean, we, we have been for a while, and uh, it's been working really great. Um, I, like anything, though, interoperability um, comes with some challenges, right? Um, but we're I, I, only going to see good things come from, from this merger as far as that goes, right? It's going to be less configuration, potentially less issues, because they'll have that native interop with, with the QSC platform, uh, you know, kind of inherent to the, to the boxes, if you will. Uh, at least the boxes that I'm used to using, right? So uh, I, I see that from an engineering and design and implementation standpoint to be uh, all positives. So. All right. Uh, John, from uh, somebody who uses this, this stuff uh, from the, the, the end user's side, do you see stuff like this when it happens uh, and, and mergers and acquisitions that happen, they start um, eliminating not necessarily competition, but the, the interconnectivity with, with the competition. Let's say you were using brand X, Y, or Z DSP. Uh, with a tarot tech and suddenly QSC owns them. So that either becomes more difficult or sometimes not, not available at all. How do you guys work around that? Well, it's interesting. And in that world in particular, the, the DSP stuff kind of tends to be siloed anyway, because there's QSIS, there's uh, oh, I'm just completely drawing a blank on the, the one I just had in my head, but they tend to be sort of proprietary solutions in there. So to me, it's sort of like interesting that this is just a way to expand out um, the QSIS world. And I think also what's really interesting about QSIS is that, you know, it's primarily uh, sort of originally, or at least well known as a DSP system, but the control capabilities of that, uh, and something that I, I wrote a book about and all that, um, the control capabilities are actually uh, finding uh, applications for QSIS that are really fascinating. Like you wouldn't, wouldn't have thought, um, that uh, this DSP device could actually, you know, run an entire, uh, you know, installation or attraction or whatever. But that there, it's a really powerful system. So to me, just by expanding it, just means more capabilities coming into that ecosystem. Yeah, if you if you were a longtime uh, viewer of this program, John's uh, book on show control uses it right behind me. Uh, back when I still had, when I still had the, the bookshelf. So, uh, Chris, from a, a distributor standpoint, and somebody who you guys carry along a different line. How do you handle uh, mergers and acquisitions? Uh, you know, when you just talked to John about what happens when, when one brand kind of uh, uh, fires another from a distributor, communicating that merger, that acquisition with your client and saying, okay, you know what? Um, we did have this, but now we don't, right? Or the opposite way, where you're committing line and they made the acquisition and suddenly you have access to an entirely new ecosystem. How do you communicate that? Um, yeah, so that's something happening a lot today, actually, is a lot of our uh, distributors, as uh, they acquire companies, it, like you said, we all of a sudden gain access to that line. Um, sometimes the challenge is, is figuring out how to better take care of the uh, end user, the customer, the integrator um, with those products. You know, so we have to educate ourselves on the products. Um, you know, the, the biggest challenge sometimes is interoperability. Um, is, is understanding, you know, the technology change, especially with uh, you know, Dante or QSIS, making sure that the other products that we hit carry 
um, we'll work with those products. So um, we, we closely keep a track of those mergers and technology trends to make sure that there's no interoperability issues with our uh, equipment. Um, but yeah, I mean, from the distribution standpoint as well, um, it's pluses and minuses. It's, we've actually uh, been very successful actually recently, especially recent water um, acquisitions with uh, uh, Legrand, for example, you know, had more, more access to those products to better service our customers. Yeah, absolutely. All right, guys, our next, uh, pro- uh, our next article actually comes to us from Sound Communications. Uh, Anthony Vargas writes about the resolution revolution is, is the wording that he uses. And I want to pick apart something here real quick. And John, I'm going to start with you because of, of your connection with live events and live, live staging uh, systems. Um, he writes about the, the biggest hurdle uh, over, to overcome when it comes to this drive to resolution, uh, drive to bigger resolutions, quote unquote, the, the largest hurdles to widespread adoption of 4K and 8K displays has yet to be overcome. The lack of native 4K and 8K content out there. Although some of the major streaming services like Netflix and Amazon Prime Video have begun offering 4K content, the vast majority of video content, especially live content, is not being produced in 4K. He puts this in, 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 in the package and then ends up talking about gaming. Now, understand something. You, when you're talking about gaming and you're talking about the, the higher resolutions, and honestly, some, some of that's also the higher frame rates, which if you've ever watched something with that's let's say 4k 30 versus 4k 120 it's also it's a, it's a combination of the resolution and the frame that rate that, that really gets you the hyper realistic stuff but he makes a point about the move to e-gaming and the move to to live gaming experiences being one of the biggest drivers do you see that where you, where you're sitting when it comes to the live environment and the live production where these higher resolutions and the content to drive those experiences is really being being created and, and maybe it's the it's the consumer uh, home experience that maybe not is not keeping keeping caught up right well I think it's interesting the the whole you know this is where we overlap with a consumer world and, and we're in this sort of strange gray area between but I think if you're looking at a single screen in your living room you know and you're sitting 10 feet away from it or whatever then uh, super high resolution I think is a lot more important than on a, you know, obviously your resolution is important on a big screen, but uh, I was doing some work over Radio City on the, uh, the upcoming Christmas show that's running in the next couple of weeks here, or opening next, sorry, month. I don't know what day it is anymore. Um, and uh, there they have this, the massive video screen in there, and I forgot what the dot pitch is, but, you know, if you're on stage 20 feet from it, you really can't even see the individual pixels from there. So if you're in the audience another 40, 50, 70, 100 feet away, you know, that kind of resolution is just your eye can't even resolve it at a certain point. Um, and the, the interesting thing to me, the bigger issue, especially in esports, because we've started doing esports tournaments here as part of our uh, curriculum. And it was one of those things like, I'm not really a big gamer. Uh, some of our faculty are, but the students are like, oh, we want to do this thing because it's happening. I'm like, really? And then I, I looked it up and I'm like, oh, of course you're right. But it's still standard sort of production techniques. But the latency is a big issue uh, so you notice in the article, he talks a lot about the screen, the, the audience facing screens and the resolution of those and so on. But all the gamers are not actually looking at those screens because it takes a long time for pixels to get through any of these display technologies, LED displays, anything like that. It takes a long time to get through them and all the processing upstream of that and everything. So the gamers can't really even 
look at that, it's going to be too confusing because of the latency. And I did a uh, uh, sound system once for a, a big uh, YouTube event in the uh, theater in Madison Square Garden, the one that's underneath. And uh, the um, producer called me out and was like, oh, there's some sync problems in the media. And I'm like, okay, well, I was all ready to give my standard, well, the speed of sound is 1,000 feet per second, and if you're 100 feet from the screen, it's going to be out by 100 milliseconds. And it went out, and we were, audio was ahead of video at 75 feet in the audience. And I'm like, what's going on? So I went and talked to my friends in the video world, and sure enough, they're like, oh, it's like two-frame latency, which it was. It was more like 10 or something. And this is a few years ago, but that issue, you know, through all the video processing and then through the displays themselves, there's an immense amount of latency in there uh, that you have to account for sometimes. We actually, we actually delayed back the sound to the picture in that case. And I was a projectionist 100 years ago, and at least, you know, you're kind of sensitive to those type of things. But so to me, in the big picture, if you've got a massive video wall like that, and that was, you know, covered this really, really wide stage and looked amazing. And again, I'm a sound guy mostly. So to me, I don't see a real benefit that, you know, having extreme resolutions in that. If it was up to me where to spend a development money, I would put the money into the latency and get these pixels out faster because that's an issue for everybody. And especially in gaming, they have these like low latency monitors and super high frame rates and all that because you're dealing with your own, you know, limits of human reaction time and that kind of stuff. So that's, uh, uh, that's to me, that's the, the bigger issue than the, the number of pixels you got. Because we have tons of pixels, whether it's getting resolved or, uh, you know, one-to-one -one or whatever it is. But the, uh, so that, that's my issue. And then also the article uses the old, uh, marketing thing of no latency or zero latency, which just drives me insane because everything has latency. If you can deliver it within one frame, they, they, they did say correctly in the article, zero frame latency, which is what they're starting to say, but everything has latency. So, Well, it's good that we're at least starting to be honest about that. Um, yeah. One thing I, I want to point out that we'll put a link to this. You, you also wrote an article this summer about the art of, of technology, right? And, and, and bringing that back into, again, someplace that, that you are, in, intimately involved, you know, in, in tech, something you guys do on, on a regular basis. Um, how do you communicate what what your needs are, both to folks like Jeremy, but also to, to manufacturers and distributors like Chris? Yeah, so the well, I wrote two articles that are related, uh, the same topic that was on sabbatical last spring, and this is a result of the work. But the general premise of the article is that we've kind of hit a technological maturity point in the industry. Uh, and of course, there's always going to be innovation. We're not saying there's no more innovation, we're finished. But a lot of the basic stuff in our world, anyway, the live production world is pretty well figured out. Uh, rigging electrics, data distribution, like, you know, this can always be improved. But we're using a lot of the technology that's been around for a while, uh, for a long time. Uh, and also, um, so anyway, that's had some impacts. I think we're just sort of realizing. So the premise of the article is that we went through a really crazy period of sort of, uh, you know, that standard, uh, you know, exponential curve of technology developments. We went through some inflection point in the mid 80s. And then I, my uh, premise is that around about 2010, somewhere in there, you can move the date around a few years, uh, it kind of flattened out a little bit. I mean, I would say the curve is still going upward, of course, but um, it's not as crazy as it was. So now we have things like, you know, networking technology, um, and power distribution and reading, like those, again, those are the big three things. But if you learn IP addresses and you work in the lighting department, that also applies to video, that applies to audio, that applies to automation, pyro. We're all using those same things. So we have this sort of common skill set. And that's the second article I wrote was sort of the educational impact of that. 
So I don't think I actually answered your question, but um, that's the stuff I've been thinking about for a few years, and I kind of wrote it all down uh, this summer. Very cool. Jeremy, when you see articles like this, or, or your customers see articles like this, and they're like, I want an 8K display, right? I want an 8K TV in, in my conference room, my boardroom, what have you. How do you have a conversation with them about content and, and the lack of it sometimes? Well, I'm talking about the 98% use case, right? This is not my medical simulation clients calling me up, right? This is a boardroom, a conference room, a training room where they're doing PowerPoint presentations. They're showing video. They're showing training videos. They're doing Excel sheets. They're doing P&L statements. They're doing whatever, right? Uh, I talk them as fast as I can out of buying anything over 1980 by, or 1920 by 1080, right? It's becoming harder because it's actually becoming more expensive to get 1080p displays than it is to get 4K displays, uh, just because of the manufacturing side of the house driving that cost down. Um, but for me, what the, it's it's education and understanding that the higher your resolution, the more limited your viewing distances, for example, are. Right. So we have to take all of that into account when you're talking about boardrooms and training facilities. So the people who say I want 8K because they think it's the latest and greatest thing and they got it at their house and it looks phenomenal. Um, there's been a few times they don't listen to me and then they've just not bought from me. And then they call and complain when they can't, you know, when the text is too small, right? And they're just having to zoom into everything all the time. Um, so, I mean, a lot of times we're putting in these 4K displays because we're forced to, but I'm driving the scalers to push 1080p. Right. Um, it, it's unfortunate, but that's in the boardroom environment or in the video conference environment or those environments. We just kind of have to do that in order to get the right display sizes for the maximum viewing distances. Um, totally different story when we're talking about uh, any kind of simulation, whether it's medical manufacturing. Uh, when you start getting into detailed um, engineering, engineering training rooms and conference rooms completely different story, right? Uh, it just comes down to what's the use case of the customer and educating them on the differences. I was just going to jump in and say that actually you just made me think and that sort of relates back to the point I was just making about uh, maturity. It's like, and I commend you for advising your clients not to buy something they don't need. Um, but the idea that like 1080p is pretty good and it's good enough for most things. But if you're somebody selling panels that, you know, uh, LED displays or whatever, that's not really good for your business model. So I think this is one of the things you see where like more resolution, you get this hype going and they're like, oh, we need it. And in fact, like you're saying, a lot of cases don't. But of course, if you're looking at super detailed renderings, that's a different story. So. Chris, same kind of question is as you're dealing with your clients, folks like Jeremy, you know, how are you using <laughs> them as, as this push? At least it feels like this way from the manufacturing side going sell bigger, sell you know, bigger resolutions. How are you right. walking them through this? Um, well, for us, it's, it's definitely been an interesting challenge. Um, obviously, we have to be there to have products to support these changes in the industry. Um, so a lot of our electronics at Liberty, we've upgraded to 4K at a 4K30 or 4K60. Pretty much everything is, supports it now. Um, but, you know, we do have a couple still distribution systems and 1080p is still a pretty big call out, you know, especially for digital signage for that, you know, uh, for those reasons. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because we're also uh, working closely with our manufacturers on, on designs. Um, so especially HD, HDMI 2.1 is being talked about right now to support 8K. 
but again, going back on the topic of gaming, you know, how to utilize that 2.1, they may choose to go with a lower um, resolution to get to increase their refresh rate just because of that latency, you know, especially for the esports arenas where they might be using KVM or fiber extenders from the actual gaming consoles to the players in the arena. Um, you know, like John mentioned, that latency is, is critical for them. You know, it's, it's uh, two frames is, is makes or, you know, makes or breaks the game that you're playing. Um, so for that, for that reason, we've actually invested in a lab uh, at Liberty where we're actually bringing in lots of products, testing everything for compatibility, interoperability issues, we're participating in various committees, working very close with the manufacturers to test everything. Um, so staying on top of these trends, is 8K being talked about? Yes, you know, um, definitely maybe 10 years down the road, you're gonna see a lot of fiber or EOC cables just to support the bandwidth. Um, so we're working in those products as well. Um, but to be honest, we've been working with a lot of integrators, uh, testing things, trying different things, seeing how uh, the latency issues, you know, frame rate, you know, refresh rates, definitely trying different products and kind of seeing, you know, what works, what doesn't work. So uh, it's interesting, you know, like, like John mentioned, this industry has been very solid with the lighting, rigging, you know, and this video is definitely, it's growing so fast that we do have to stay on top of it and, and make sure that there's no issues, uh, especially interoperability issues. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, that, that, I think that right there will, the interoperability and, and the, the transport was, is where folks will get tripped up here in the next three to four years. Yeah. All right, fellas, last story here uh, from our friends over at AV Magazine, who I will be, go hang I will be hanging out with uh, this coming Friday night. Uh, we'll talk about that here in a second. Uh, ISE, Integrated Systems Europe, the registration has opened. Uh, ISE comes your way the 11th to the 14th of February in Amsterdam from the Rye. I will point this out. Last year uh, in Amsterdam, and uh, they will be moving to Barcelona in 2021. It is the biggest AV show in the world, uh, period, end of sentence, uh, full stop. Last year, they had a little bit over 80,000 people. This year, I would expect around 80 to 85,000. Lots of folks, um, lots of different reasons why they're moving to Barcelona. One is that they're pretty much at capacity, um, and uh, we're going to talk with you guys about it. Jeremy, I want to start with you on this. Uh, Jeremy has a, a, an interesting perspective. Number one, Jeremy is, like I said, he's just due north of me, uh, actually in my hometown of Peoria. Uh, Illinois, halfway between Chicago and St. Louis, for those of you who aren't familiar with the geography of Illinois. Um, so you're, you know, in the middle of the, of the country, in the middle of the state, right? You're going to an international show. Now, you're also, you've also been a part of Avixa leadership committees for years. Uh, so you have, you know, an industry um, a leadership role as well. From your perspective, why should let's just say folks from North America, you know, integrators from North America go to a show like ISE. Uh, you know, I started going solely because of my involvement with leadership at Avixa. That's it. Uh, I couldn't justify the expense. And sometimes it's still challenging to justify the expense, right? Unfortunately, I get to stay with some friends and things like that. But I will say that I do want to go every year now, leadership or not. Right. And the reasoning for that is, well, twofold. It started originally because I was so busy at Infocom. I didn't get much time on the show floor. I didn't get to see innovation and product and things like that. So this was my my Infocom, right, if you will. Okay. Uh, but now it's kind of spawned into a product release, right? Most of my major manufacturers are releasing a lot of products at ISE versus Infocom. So we're ahead of the game. I'm getting to see it firsthand. I'm getting to talk to the engineers firsthand. 
Uh, on top of that, there's a lot of companies in the world that don't show at Infocom in North America. Okay. So it brings for me, who's running an integration company and who's kind of the, the lead engineer here, right, overseeing designs, uh, more global perspective and idea of what are the different types of technologies that are out there, right? My favorite thing to do, Infocom IC, doesn't matter where it is, is to not hit the main floor, but to hit the little booths on the outskirts, right? Because that's where innovation's happening, right? Those are the companies that are about to be acquired. Those are the, where their tarot tech started, right? Now they're booths next year, right? Like that that's where you find innovation and in, in, in kind of outside the box thinking. Uh, I like that there's a lot of residential stuff. I don't get to go to CDA. It's just not a big thing. We're not a resi house. That's kind of mixed in with ISC being Infocom and kind of CDA together, right? Um, so there's kind of that perspective because I am a big believer tying in with our previous story that the consumer world drives a majority of what we do in the commercial world, right? So seeing what's on the forefront of that horizon um, is I think critical. So for me, that's the encouragement I tell everybody is, is go be forward thinking, see stuff that's global, uh, get a more global perspective and see what else is out there, right? And what what other companies exist that, that you you're just not exposed to here in the United States. Yeah, I, 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 those would be my, my two is the fact that it has become the first place where folks are are releasing products. I think I said this before we started recording. Uh, last year they had over 250 new product releases, right? Uh, and you will you will run into folks that you you will, you will never see here, at least in the states. I'm not going to say North America overall. Just at least in the states, simply because they they have no you know, they don't need to be here yet. They don't want to be here yet. They're fine in in, in doing uh, distributing it and, and making it available where they want to. Uh, John, you're in New York, so you are a hop, skip, and a jump from from Amsterdam. And, and, <laughs> um, so you know, folks that are in your backyard, it's a little bit easier, right, from a, a travel standpoint and, and sometimes a cost standpoint. Uh, when you're talking with your students and and you know as they go out into the world. Talk for a second about the, the the benefit of going to an international show and talking to folks outside of your outside of your geographic area or even outside of your your national area and seeing where they come from and the challenges that they face. A lot of them are the same, but a lot of them are different. Yeah, I think our students are a little unusual in that, that we have many of our students are are were born in other countries, so they have a lot of that experience already. I, first, I've never been to ISE, but I'm thinking about going this year um, and have some good friends in Amsterdam I'd like to visit. But and I know for me, the, the thing I look at at these shows um, is some of the things like Jerry was just saying, is like looking for not, not always this new product, but sort of where is the industry heading? Like, obviously, I'm very interested in networking. So what's going on in that world, the audio and video networking, those type of things. And I think being at the shows like that, where it's a larger group and also seeing like my friends in Europe, they do very similar things, but they do them slightly differently. Um, and our students, uh, we're, we try to get them, again, it's funny because all our students are from New York where we can go to the Javits Center for you know the price of the subway. So AES is coming here next week or the week after. So I'm actually requiring the students to go there. Um, so they get a little spoiled in that way. A lot of people in New York production end up doing that anyway, where they're sort of, uh, you know, oh, they, they all come here anyway. They don't really need to travel. But I think uh, that type of travel for anybody. And, I, of course, travel, especially outside the country, it's always enlightening and uh, it's, it's worth doing. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Chris, we'll wrap up here with you. An international, an international show like this happens. Your dealers come back and start calling you up and say, Chris, we, we want you to come mm -hmm. to this thing or, or that thing. 
Um, you know, Jeremy mentioned the fact that, that there are some c companies there that, that don't distribute here in the States. You distribute uh, quite a number of, of products. And one of the interesting things that I think that Mike Blackman and his team, that Mike Blackman's the guy that runs ISC, um, they have a distribution kind of um, speed dating uh, option where you can, as a distributor, and depending on what you, where you are in the, in the world, they'll have a, a kiosk or a section where they can say, you know, this product is looking for distributors in you know, South America or in the U.S. or where have you. So, you know, how do you take requests like that from, from maybe customers like Jeremy who come back and say, hey, you know what, Chris, this was really cool. And you might, they, they don't have a presence here in the States yet. Uh, so you might want to check them out. How do you handle those requests? We definitely look into those for sure. You know, um, and actually, you know, personally, I haven't been to ISC either. Um, Liberty has participated the last couple of years. And, you know, the other product team I talked to, they said it's a really big show. Um, and they really wanted to invest getting more people at that show for that reason. Uh, kind of scoping out new technology trends. Um, looking for those companies that have the next big product that, you know, uh, they just need a little help with distribution. You know, I think you're right. You know, it's, it's, there's a lot of technology there that can be really unique and then we can help them get into that market, especially if it's a good fit with our products uh, to help promote it. So, I mean, that's, those are the uh, techniques we look for uh, in, in those products to offer. All right, guys, that'll be a place to stop it. Again, you, you can go to ISC's website. You can go from our website. You can go from Amen. Most most manufacturers, if they're if they're showing, or if you are, uh, uh, most media outlets also will have a link there. But it's iseurope.org if you're if you're planning again. Last year in Amsterdam, uh, if you don't care about Amsterdam and you're more interested in Barcelona, eh, wait a year. So, all right, guys, uh, Mr. Caldera, thank you, sir. Oh, glad to be here. How do people get a hold of you or IAS if they are so inclined? IASTechnology.net or uh, Jeremy underscore Caldera on uh, the Twitter thing. Uh, Mr. Chris, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Uh, how do people get a hold of you and or uh, Liberty? Yeah, so my email address is uh, cgazdic, um, so it's C-G-A-Z-D-I-C at uh, libav.com, L-I-B-A-V.com. That's the best way to reach me um, and I'll be able to help you guys. Thank you so much. Uh, and Mr. Huntington, thank you, sir, as always. Yeah, thanks. My pleasure. And uh, my website is uh, controlgeek.net, and I have all the usual uh, you know, email form and so on on there. And I, you mentioned it earlier, but I would just encourage people, if you're in New York, and we're actually, I, uh, I don't think we're actually open during AES, but if you're even here for that, um, come out and check out our, our attraction. It's been uh, run on Dante for like six years now. The whole thing's network. Uh, we have it's running. I have it sitting right next to me. His media one manager is controlling the whole thing, and we have about six thousand people a year come through it. But the way it's set up is that you can see all the technology when you exit. So you come out, just come see it. Ask for me. I'm almost always here, unfortunately. Uh, if I'm not, you know, one of my students can show you around, and we're happy to do it uh, anytime. And if not, you can just contact me through the website if you're going to be here some other time. But uh, we want people to come and check it out because it's really a fun, a fun event. And we're, we reprogrammed our animatronic characters this, this summer, and we've changed a bunch of things. So uh, I think it's going to be a good year. Again, that's the Gravesend, and uh, it's a it's a haunted house. So let me start by saying that. So if that's not your thing. Right. With a hold of Johnny, you can you can walk through the back end first, and then exactly. Uh, but yeah, and I actually I will be in New York uh, the fourteenth, so I actually need a hold of you for New York to build. Oh, absolutely. Oh so, yeah. Um, 
So thank you guys so much uh, for me. Uh, Tim Albright, you know, follow me on the Twitters because at this point, and actually by the time this posts, I will have already been through this. Uh, I get to go to the Bears game in uh, in London uh, in about two days' time. Nice. So that and the Stanley Cup uh, defending uh, uh, St. Louis Blues. That was for you, Jeremy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, appreciate that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, seriously, for the most part, uh, for more, actually more importantly, go by the website, avnation.tv. That's avnation.tv. You will find this program and a host of others. While you are there, please check out our underwriter section, our supporters. These are the folks who help us financially, help, help us bring you AV Week and Resi Week and all kinds of other coverage. Um, crazy couple of, of, of months. We're actually in the middle of it, at least for our, our travel schedule. Uh, one week from today, uh, which is a, which is Friday the 4th, we will be broadcasting live from the AV Magazine Awards in London. Uh, it comes your way 2 p.m. Eastern uh, on Friday. Mr. Chris Netto uh, from Staring Marketing and myself. We'll be broadcasting live from London uh, and the AV Magazine Awards, so check that out. Uh, we'll also be recording a, a special edition of AV Week next week in AV Magazine's uh, offices. And then actually Chris and I both turn around and head to New York the Monday after that uh, for New York Digital Science Week, doing all sorts of really cool things. Uh, kick off uh, New York Digital Science Week with a live broadcast from Times Square and Dactronics office uh, and also doing some stuff with Planar. Uh, Chris has got some stuff going on. Uh, actually, tons of folks. NEC has a showcase, Coffee and Controversy on Tuesday morning with DSF. Uh, that one is is actually moving locations from Google's headquarters in New York to Microsoft's headquarters in New York. So they're they're yeah, not not a bad not a bad venue, huh, John? Um, so yeah, check all that out. Um, and then I think we wrap up our fall uh, with AVEC, uh, where I am going to be moderating a panel, and my buddy Mark Coxon uh, from Tangram will be uh, emceeing. So check all that out and more at the website, avnation.tv. That's avnation.tv. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. That's all the time we have for AV. Week.